Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So this is episode 58, and this is the second time I'm very lucky to record with this uh, lady. So on today's episode is Claire Goodwin. So Claire is also known as the PCOS Nutritionist on Instagram. I've been following Claire for a good while now. Um, she's a registered nutritionist over in New Zealand. She's also the host of the PCOS Nutritionist Podcast, which is incredible because she gets some of her clients, some people who have who have PCOS and get them to talk about their journey, so it's incredible. She's a former international runner and triathlete and has and developed insulin resistance while she was competing. Uh, she's a creator of the PCOS Protocol, which is an eight-week online program created to help you identify your PCOS type or root cause and give you the specific steps you need to take to address that root cause. So Claire, thank you so much for coming back on. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It's so good to be able to talk to you twice in a couple of weeks. I know because I that we, we were talking off air that you 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 shared a photo up on your story and tagged me in it. And I've had a few ladies messaging, where is the episode? So I had definitely had to uh, get you back on. Uh, we don't want to disappoint. <laughs> we do not. Keep uh, the people happy. Exactly. Uh, so, Claire, so for anyone that isn't aware of your story, tell us your story and how you kind of get in, got into the field of nutrition and then also kind of specializing in PCOS. So, you, I think you gave a great intro. So, when I was a competing internationally in athletics and then triathlon, I guess being a sports person from a relatively young age, like I started competing internationally when I was 15, um, and being from New Zealand, that meant traveling to Europe, which is a long way away. It's like 24 hours of flying. Um, and you know, because of that, we'd often stay away offshore for a month or two, and I was often in teams with much older people, you know, sort of in their 20s, which when you're 15 is quite a big age gap. So I think that... Um, sort of sports and performance and nutrition was really uh, important for me for me for a young age and I think also too because I started to notice that there was very different body shapes and I didn't necessarily have the body shape of um, like what we'd call a quote-unquote normal runner in terms of like a very very lean I always held a lot more fat than what my competitors would it didn't seem to make any difference I was still winning I was still like competing very well um but I did come under a bit of scrutiny and have like a lot of comments about my like you know body shape and maybe I needed to eat less and things like that and I think that that um definitely headed me down the, in the field of nutrition and just for trying to understand why this happens and why you know when someone they're both doing the same training and eating the same kind of foods why someone would have a completely different body shape to someone else and then later on in my, the reason I kind of got into specializing into polycystic ovarian syndrome was towards the end of my um, athletic career and, and I switched to triathlon, I found out that I was pre-diabetic or insulin resistant. And what that means is that my, you know, my body was producing too much insulin and blood sugar and I was on the track to developing type 2 diabetes, which I found remarkable given the fact that I just spent five years at university qualifying. So as well as doing um, my nutrition degree I also did an honours degree in sports science sports exercise exercise science which I think now is kind of called exercise physiology but um, that's I kind of had both these backgrounds and in that five years I'd learnt that people that developed type 2 diabetes were basically it was because they were like watching too much Love Island omnibus and <laughs> eating you know like eating donuts 24-7 and I was like whoa, 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 like, how can this happen? I train, like, 20 hours a day, and 20 hours a week, not 20 hours a day. God, that would be obscene. But 20 hours a week is still a lot of time, right? Like, this is to the point where it would be very hard to hold down a full-time job training 20 hours a week. And, um, and, and I was a qualified nutritionist. I was following all of the nutrition guidelines, and yet I was the one that's on track to developing type 2 diabetes. And that, at the same time as being diagnosed as pre-diabetic, I was also diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so then, um, and I had a lot of symptoms, so I was gaining gaining weight. So I was kind of, it was slowly going up. I'd never really been able to lose weight, even though I'd tried like calorie deficit and obviously I was training so much, it was pretty hard to be in a calorie surplus. So I was like, oh gosh, well, how am I actually gaining weight when I'm not in a surplus and this is everything I've learned. Like everything I've learned in nutrition school is telling me that the calories are the only thing that can cause weight gain and yet here I am having 
a completely different experience to that. So that really for, like forced me into the path of no one could really answer my question. Like I went to lots of different women's health doctors and endocrinologists and the answer was always the same. That there was no like there nothing really they could do. They prescribed me metformin, which is the um, it's an insulin sensitizing drug, and often prescribed to women with polycystic ovarian syndrome because of the insulin resistant connection. Um, but that like nothing really helped, and so I was like, well, if I'm I'm not going to just allow myself to go down this path with the with the knowledge and background that I have. So if I'm can't find anyone to help me, I'm just going to have to figure this out on my own, and that's kind of what led me into further study in the field of functional medicine, and which is really just treating the root cause of chronic illness rather than treating the symptoms, like you know, within polycystic ovarian syndrome, trying to figure out, well, what's the, like, root cause of that? Is it, you know, insulin or is it stress hormones or is it thyroid or is it a combination of all of them and what do we need to do? What lifestyle changes can we make to have the biggest impact for this patient or individual? Does that make sense? That makes 100% sense. Um, Right. And it's it's really common because I... I think it's what I think it's ten percent of P- of females may have PCOS. Is that the the stuff? Yeah, yeah, one uh, in ten. And some of the recent recent estimations are one in five. Now they don't like. I think it's a little bit hard to say whether it is one in five, but we do know that the incidence has been increasing over the last like sixty years. Like sixty years ago, it would have been really uncommon to hear of someone who had polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, I don't know exactly if they've got a stat, but you know you can imagine say it was like one in fifty. Or whatever it was but now it's like the incidence has increased dramatically and that's when we can say well even though we know that genes play a massive role in PCOS they our genes can't change that fast right there's only been one generation between or two generations between 1950 and now and yet the incidence has skyrocketed so there must be our environment must have a, um, a big part to play in this as well and it does and in your experience, do you find it more prominent to leaner individuals or more obese individuals? It's definitely more common in um, overweight. But I think the thing is that it's really hard to know what comes first. Is it, and we think that it's a bit of a, a bit of both, that someone that has, because what happens in PCOS, why, it's, why many women gain weight and often gain weight very quickly is because you've got this really vicious cycle of insulin and testosterone so testosterone really is what PCOS is it's an increase in the male quote-unquote male hormones testosterone um, and testosterone there's a family of them they've um, different names but basically those kind of male hormones and that leads to a lot of the symptoms that we get many women will get facial body hair growth some will get um, lose their hair especially in the male typically male pattern balding areas, um, acne around the chin and jawline, again, that's testosterone-based. And so really this is what PCOS is. It's an, it's an increase in testosterone, um, which then also disrupts menstrual cycles and makes fertility much harder and things like that. But it also contributes to weight gain. So in a lot of women that with PCOS, they'll, their insulin will increase, which will then lead to an increase of testosterone, which will then cause more insulin to be released, which will cause more testosterone. So it's really this this vicious cycle that can contribute to weight gain. So, um, But then again, like up to 30% of women with PCOS don't have any weight gain as a symptom of their PCOS. So it's not necessarily just those that are um, that have that have weight gain that do have PCOS, but it does tend to be more common. And I know there is PCOS and then there's polycystic uh, ovary uh, as well. What oh my is, gosh, yes. What is the difference between the two um, in layman's terms, please? <laughs> <laughs> you, you are so good for asking this question because so many people don't know this. They might... So polycystic ovary. So really... Um, what the cysts on the ovaries are is really all they are is baby eggs that haven't like hatched when you don't ovulate. So imagine that your your ovaries are constantly trying to produce eggs that it can ovulate. And many times it'll be, so you imagine like your ovaries got this like, you know those Russian nesting dolls, the ones that go inside each other? Yeah. Imagine them all apart. So you have like this production line of like the smallest up to the largest. And that's kind of what happens in your ovaries at any one time is that there's this dominant one that it's trying to grow to then be able to release it when the time's right. Um, generally sometime within your cycle. 
um, your body will then just re- like release that egg and then that will then cause your body to produce pre- progesterone and then if you're not pregnant then it will um, that will come down and then you get your period but what happens if you don't ovulate so say it's like trying to release this big egg and then something something's wrong with it like maybe it didn't quite grow to size or maybe it's just not quite the right quality your your body will just discard that and go right you're not you're no use you're not going to get um released so i'm going to then now focus on the next one and those discarded follicles stay kind of stuck on the ovary right and that's what appears as cysts so up to 25% of all women, whether you've got PCOS or not, have some of these kind of cysts or follicles on the ovary. They don't mean anything apart from you haven't been able to release or you that egg or you haven't ovulated at one point in time during the year. Um, it doesn't mean they always stay there. They can disappear. They can come and go. Um, it just means that you haven't released that egg. That, that's all that they mean. PCOS, though, is when you, so what happens in PCOS is, as I said, generally have this increase in testosterone, and that's really the crux of what the PCOS, the polycystic ovarian syndrome is. And But what that can mean is that, as I said before, it can cause disruption in your menstrual cycle and stop you from ovulating, which then results in those follicles or cysts not being able to be released um, as an egg and staying stuck on the ovary. Is that layman enough? Does that make sense or is that, it still a bit confusing? No, that's, that makes 100% sense. Um, and you you mentioned like... Oh, the... sorry, Shane. I was just going to say, so a lot of women will... This is where the diagnosis part of PCOS is really important. So a lot of people will, you know, they might have an ultrasound for some reason and the doctor might say, oh, you've got polycystic ovaries. And they'll then think, I've got polycystic ovarian syndrome, right, which is not the same thing. So to have the syndrome, you actually have to have two out of the three criteria one only one of them is the cysts second is like irregular periods or missing periods entirely and the third is the high androgens the high testosterone and etc all the symptoms of high androgens so maybe if you have acne around your chin and jawline um like facial body hair growth and or hair loss that can be a diagnosing factor as well perfect because that was the next question i was leading on to um in relation to exactly yeah um and what is the most what's the best way to find out if you have pcos is is it kind of going to the local gp or is there somewhere else that you should kind of go yeah your local gp is your your first um, place to go so they can diagnose um if they don't know they might refer you to a gynecologist or endocrinologist as well um but your gp can from those three criteria so if you if you yourself could go in there and say hey, I think I might have this. I have, I'm in my, you know, late 20s. I'm still getting acne around my chin and jawline or sort of around my mouth. Um, I've got irregular periods or maybe you've been missing periods for a while. Um, can you, you know, can you test me? I think I've, I've heard, I listened to this podcast and there was a PCOS expert. I heard that those are the two of the three criteria. Maybe can you do some testing for me as well? Um, and they might out, they should be able to just say to you, yeah, okay, like if those are your symptoms, yes, you do fit to it at three criteria, regardless of whether, you know, they might then draw some blood work and look at your testosterone and stuff in the blood. Um, you can still have normal levels of testosterone in your blood um, because it's not particularly accurate. So free testosterone in the blood isn't a particularly accurate marker. Um, I often see women where they'll have, like, it looks like normal testosterone, but then when we do a more sensitive test, so the more sensitive one that I would do is called the Dutch test, and we can see on there, that's measuring their urine and saliva, and we can see there that their testosterone's off the charts, right? And I just had a a, a, um, a consult actually straight before you where that's exactly the case. Very normal, I think the range was like between zero and three or sorry it was like 0.5 and three for testosterone and hers was 1.13 we then did the dutch test and hers was well out of the normal range for that so it's just it's one of those things that i would say even if someone if you're getting the symptoms like around the chin and jawline or you've got facial body hair growth or you've noticed that your hair is thinning in um your part or around your like hairline or in the crown of your head, then those are clinically significant symptoms to be able to be diagnosed. And you don't even have to then have the cysts to have to be also be diagnosed. There's again, many cases where women will be diagnosed with PCOS without having the cysts because it's only one of the three criteria. 
That's amazing. That's I think that's definitely a big takeaway point on how to kind of get tested if you feel you may have some of the symptoms uh, for that. You mentioned about the menstrual cycle and that it may be a little bit different for those who don't suffer from PCOS. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, really good question again. So what happens in PCOS is that as your hormones get a bit disrupted, your body will... Uh, may have more trouble ovulating as I said before it's like that it's trying to you know trying to release that that big Russian nesting doll that big egg um, but there can be a disruption in the hormones so for just a little brief uh, overview of the menstrual cycle so after you get your period your estrogen rises and that helps to grow your egg so it is a hormone called follicle stimulating hormone those two are the two main hormones used to grow the egg ready to be ovulated then in um, about the middle of your cycle, you have a hormone that re- releases called luteinizing hormone, and this shoots up to release that egg. It's like a, um, I heard the gyne geek, Anita. Um, you sh- if you're not following her, you should. She's very, she's fantastic. She's based in the UK, and she ex- described it as like, imagine luteinizing hormone is like the pin that comes and pricks the egg to like kind of pop it and release it out into the fallopian tubes. So, but what happens in PCOS is that many of us produce too much luteinizing hormone and so our body gets confused it's like shit this is way higher than what i was expecting and so it gets confused and it's like uh i don't know what's going on here so i'm just not going to do anything i'm just not going to ovulate and so then your body discards that egg again it becomes stuck on the ovary appears as a cyst and then it goes and starts developing the next egg hoping by the time that it does that that you're um, luteinizing hormone will be, you know, be in the normal range, and therefore it'll be able to ovulate. So this can happen many, many times in a cycle, and the result is that you could get a really long cycle. So instead of being like 30 days, your cycle might be 40 or 50 or 60, or maybe you don't get a period at all. Maybe you haven't had a period in three years, and this will still be what's going on in your body. Your body will be attempting to ovulate every like week or 10 days and not be successful so it will go and try the next egg and it'll go and try the next egg this is of course if you're not on hormonal birth control if you're on hormonal birth control your brain has been switched off from ovulating so none of this will happen um, but if you're not on hormonal birth control and you're not getting a period or they're really long this is what's happening inside your body wow that's really interesting about the the birth control part it's really really interesting um in relation to someone that has PCOS, how would you kind of go about managing it from a stress lifestyle or stress or lifestyle kind of side of things, a supplementation side of things as well? Start off with kind of the stress or lifestyle first. Yeah, good question. So what I always do, so PCOS is a syndrome. And so what a syndrome means is it's not a disease. It's just basically a constellation of symptoms that the medical community have grouped together to say, oh, you've got this. It's like irritable bowel syndrome, right, or premenstrual tension syndrome. And so from what we know from those conditions is that um, modern medicine, now, uh, conventional medicine, um, isn't particularly like skilled in dealing with those because they are more they're not like a disease that we know that progresses in the same way for every person like we know that cancer we have cells replicating out of control and therefore we do x and like radio like radiation therapy or chemotherapy and it kills those cells from replicating whereas in pcos being a syndrome it doesn't develop in the same way for everybody it is um it, it, it can be different for you. And that's why I talk about getting to the root cause for you. So we know that genetics play a huge role, as I said at the start. But then we also know that we've had this massive incidence in the last few years. We do know as well that environment plays a big role. So my, my where I try and come from is what is the part of our environment that's really triggering our body, our hormones to be out of balance? And if we can identify that, then we can actually identify the most important lifestyle changes that we can make. So, for example, we know that 80% of women with PCOS will have prediabetes or insulin resistance. Okay, that's really clear from the research. And this is even women that are lean. So a lot of time a doctor will look at someone and say, well, you don't have prediabetes because you're skinny. And that's so not true. In PCOS, 75% of women who are lean, I have never had a weight issue, have prediabetes. Same thing why you could look at me and say, there's no way you'd have prediabetes. You are training 20 hours a week and you're eating like really well. It's like, well, false, I did. So that's the first thing I try and figure out is 
because it affects 80% of us, is then do I have an insulin issue? Is my insulin functioning optimally? And then if and then as well as that, the second thing I'd look at, we know that 50% of women with PCOS have more what we call it's the hormone called DHEAS and it is a brother from another mother to testosterone so it does the same thing as testosterone but it's produced in a completely different area of the body it's produced by your adrenal glands which produce your stress hormone and that's where the stress part comes in um, to your question there about other you know stress management we also know that 25% of women with PCOS will have hypothyroidism or a thyroid condition and that a lot will have chronic inflammation in the body. So what I try to do is I try to go, right, what of those things do you have? Because if we know, for example, that you have some prediabetes, we know, as I said before, that insulin causes our body to overproduce testosterone, which will then cause our body to produce more insulin. So we try and break that vicious cycle. And if we can break that vicious cycle, then we can help to bring insulin down, we can help to bring testosterone down, and then we can start to see improvements in some symptoms. So we might get less acne, we might get less hair growth, we might start to see that they're ovulating again really quickly. And in so many cases, I'll have have had women that haven't had a period in years, and just a few tweaks to their diet and lifestyle, and they're ovulating again uh, within three months. Like one of the the women I had on in my podcast, um, her name was Sarah, and that was the case for her. She hadn't had a period in years. Um, we figured out that her insulin wasn't functioning optimally and we tweaked some of her diet and she actually ovulated about two months, three months later and got pregnant on that very first ovulation, the first time she'd ovulated in many years. So it's, it means that it doesn't, um, we just, sometimes we just have to tweak a, a few things to help to support the body to get back into balance. And especially when it comes to cycles and menstrual cycles, that's kind of the first thing that our body will want to do because apart after survival, like reproduction is our next most basic instinct. That's that's an awesome story with Sarah. That's incredible. Yeah, that was uh, super cool. Super, super cool. And in relation to supplementation and PCOS, like supplementation is exactly what it says. It's supplementing something that you are potentially deficient in. Um, there are there is research in kind of pointing out various different different supplements and stuff like that. Uh, can you kind of talk about a few of those that may help you to manage uh, PCOS if you are if you have PCOS? Yeah, absolutely. And question back to you: Did when you were kind of doing your training and stuff, were you always taught that people shouldn't need supplements if they are um, living a healthy diet and healthy lifestyle? The best way for us to find out if someone was deficient in anything would be send them for a blood test and then the blood mm-hmm. test would tell us if they were deficient in something. But what generally happens in Ireland is that we do not get a lot of sun full stop, but we don't get a lot of sun between October and March. So generally I would encourage my clients and myself to supplement with, with uh, vitamin D in those time of the month and if they aren't necessarily big fish eaters uh which some people aren't just don't like the the, the taste of fish and also if they it depends on their absorption from other sources like nuts etc i generally sometimes put them on to epa or or omega-3 and omega-6 supplementation as well but it depends it's very very dependent but first first protocol would be to go to the doctor to get bloods Mm, yeah absolutely but and sometimes it's really hard to get blood tests done right like it's you know you might be fighting a Especially under like national health systems, I know you guys are under national health system in New Zealand. We are too. Like in New Zealand, we actually most of our tests are paid for, but vitamin D is one of the ones that's not, and which I find so bizarre because New Zealand, we get a, we get a bit more sun than Ireland, but in the winter, so the way that vitamin D works is that it, it actually has to. It's about the angle of the sun's rays. So even in the summer, like in some places in New Zealand, you could still get like ridiculous sunshine hours in this in the winter. So you could be out there um, with, you know, bearing skin because it's not, some places it's not that cold. It might be like 15, 17 degrees in, on a winter's day. So it's, it's warm enough to have some skin exposed. But because of the angle of the sun's rays, you cannot convert that vitamin D in your skin. That's what really what it's about. The sun has to be at a certain angle for that to work. And also, too, if you've got chronic inflammation, that can also stop your body being able to convert vitamin D. Like I've had patients in Jamaica who who don't have who have vitamin D deficiency even after exposing their skin to sun because they've got chronic inflammation and stopping their body from being able to convert it so vitamin D is a huge one and 
that is I mean, it's, it's, it's really important for so many processes in the body, including our menstrual cycle, also insulin as well, functioning properly. And we know that 50% of women with PCOS have vitamin D deficiency. So you've hit the nail on the head there. That would be one of my first ones to supplement with. Then when it comes to what other supplements, it's all, again, go, again, going back to that root cause. There's no global, like, this supplement for PCOS. It's going back and going, well, who are you? who are you with PCOS? What do you have? Do you have insulin resistance or prediabetes? Do you have chronically high stress hormones? Do you have a thyroid condition? Do you have chronic inflammation? Like as you said, talking about before, the EPA and DHA, like so crucial for um, for inflammation and bringing down inflammation. So if someone has that, then I'd be like, yeah, well, that's that's kind of definitely one of the first things I'd be going for there too. If it's there, there are a few others that, when we look at insulin resistance, there are a few that we know can help improve insulin resistance based on the research. So a key one would be a, it's from the B vitamin family, and it's called inositol. And there is pretty good evidence behind this. There's been quite a few studies done in PCOS. And it looks like there's something to do with the fact that maybe women with PCOS, we have some genetic marker that means that we're not really able to convert inositol in the body. Um, but there's been a lot of studies that so that sh- have shown that it is very effective for improving insulin sensitivity, getting ovulation back um, by you know by improving insulin sensitivity. So that would be one of the first ones that I would give. If I found out that someone was then they did have prediabetes, that would be one of the first ones that I would recommend. Um, there are other certainly other things that we can do that have some good evidence behind them. Um, a herb called berberin, which has been used in Chinese medicine for thousands of years for improving blood glucose control and insulin sensitivity. Um, that would be one that we'd look at. Again, it's one of those ones that there is a lot of good evidence, but then there's also some that show that there is that it has had no effect. So, um, but if someone was wanting to try it, I'd say go for absolutely go for gold there. Um, and then there's just making sure that you've got good amounts of other vitamins that are crucial for your insulin to function properly. So if you imagine that you have like, um, so we didn't really talk about, this is something we did talk about last time. Do you want me to ex- actually explain what insulin is? Yeah, that was, I have that, I literally just wrote that down two seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I just think, I think we, because this is our second time recording this, <laughs> I've forgotten what I've told you guys and what I haven't, but so insulin for those um, of you wanting to know, so insulin is your is a hormone that's released when we eat food. So specifically, when we eat carbohydrates and um, to a lesser extent protein, its job is basically to take that carbohydrate and store it in our cells so that we can use it later for energy. Because of course, we're not going to be able to use all of the breakfast that I've just eaten now um, for energy right in this very moment. We're going to have to. We're going to try and give me energy for the next four hours until I have lunch. So that's what insulin's job is to do is basically go to the cell and it's like a it's it's like a, a key that can fit into the cell door of the the lock of the cell door and open that up to allow the glucose to flow in. But in insulin resistance and prediabetes, so I use those terms interchangeably, they're the same thing, insulin resistance and prediabetes. Um, what happens there is that your insulin will go to the cell and it'll try and unlock the door to let the glucose in, but the lock won't quite fit anymore. It'll kind of be like it's you know when you get a new key cut for your flat and you're like, it just doesn't quite fit the same as the old key and you might be sitting there wiggling that key around for like, I don't know, 30 seconds or what feels like five minutes or 10 minutes or in really bad situations, an hour before your flatmate comes home. That will be like what insulin's doing. So it's trying to get that key open. It's not quite able to. And so your body will then get a bit worried and it will produce more and more insulin to try and hoping that it can like barge down the door or something. So that will be, so what happens is that you produce way more insulin than what you normally should. So instead of producing, say, 10 units of insulin to do that job of opening the cell door, you produce 100 or even 200. And eventually that will happen, like if that goes on for years and years, eventually your pancreas will be so overwhelmed by all the insulin it's been producing, it won't be able to produce any insulin anymore. And that's when you get into type 2 diabetes and insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes. Okay, that's kind of how it progresses. So... Going back to that cell door analogy, imagine that lock has all these sublocks, and those are what's called cofactors in that reaction. And these are all your vitamins and minerals that you need to open that lock. So you have things like vitamin D and have inositol and other B vitamins like B12 and folate, and they are all super important for that to work properly. If you don't have those, 
then that could be a reason why that cell's become a bit clogged up or is just not working optimally anymore. And in a lot of the cases, the like recommended daily intake for vitamins and minerals, and, and while I, like, like you, got taught that basically unless someone's like deficient, they shouldn't need to have vitamins and minerals. But one of the problems can be as well is that those, like testosterone I was saying before, isn't necessarily always picked up very well in the blood. Same thing can happen for our vitamins and minerals as well. So magnesium is a classic one. If you get a magnesium blood test, it's only like 0.05% of the amount of magnesium you've got in the body. Most of your magnesium is bound up in cells. And so it's not going to be in the blood for you to test it. But so a lot of these we can't tell from a blood test, but we do, we can tell from the research, say, for example, that, you know, magnesium is really important for insulin sensitivity, 30%, well, I think it's like 30% of maybe even more than that, I can't remember the exact stat, but a huge amount of us don't get as much magnesium in our diet as we should. Um, And these can all be for varying reasons. One is like obviously quality of the food that we're eating. One is the kind of food that we're eating. Um, And so I'm... While I got taught at you know at university when I was there for nutrition that people shouldn't need supplementation, what we're looking at there is people that are normally functioning, not looking at people that have chronic illness like polycystic ovarian syndrome. So I know that this I'm just saying this because I know that there is a lot of um, conflicting information out there. I know that a lot of and and from what seems to be the same people with the same degree, like another registered nutritionist would say, there should be no reason why you need to supplement in your diet. Whereas I'm coming in and saying, yeah, that's the case for someone who's normally functioning. But if I'm seeing someone who's not normally functioning, their insulin isn't functioning normally, how can I help them get back into normal functioning? And this is what the research is showing us, that these vitamins and minerals are crucial for that normal functioning. So we're going we're gonna to use those. You mentioned magnesium there about how is there would you recommend supplement if someone was deficient a little bit in magnesium and they potentially weren't getting enough through their diet what ways or what foods could they get magnesium through from their diet rather than having to supplement with it oh you're putting me on the spot there <laughs> um to remember but leafy greens are like your mate like a, you know, a really good source of um magnesium and i mean i think and i think that might be why there is, you know, people are not really getting enough of their, like, from their food because we just don't really eat that many, as, as many as what we would have in our ancestral diets, right? Like, you imagine what we have now where we have, like, lots of other foods that tend to make up the bulk of our um, diet. But that would be, I would be trying to, so when it comes to supplements, I'm always like, supplements can never replace a good diet. They really are just a supplement that. So, and the other thing too is that we tend to absorb foods way better when we get them from our food. So, you know, to be eating um, leafy greens, avocados are another really good source of magnesium. Um, but again, it's kind of like, well, what if avocados are not available to you in the, in Ireland in the middle of winter, um, or if you live in a in a in a in an area where uh, maybe in a more of a third world country where you don't have you're not getting imported goods all the time, um, nuts and seeds dark chocolate, like whole grains, you know, those are other good sources as well. So it's having the, um, like, dietary so that they can, it can be absorbed as best as possible. But if you can't have those, a lot of those foods in your diet, so for example, for someone who's got insulin resistance, whole grains might be really bad for their insulin. If depending on where, on how, you know, how their insulin is functioning, they might not be able to tolerate a lot of grains in their diet, which will mean that because grains are very um, are carbohydrate based, and pre-diabetes and insulin resistance basically means that your tolerance to carbohydrates has been reduced. So instead of your blood sugar just when you eat when you eat whole grains, instead of your blood sugar just rising to eighty, yours might rise to one twenty or one fifty when you eat whole grains. And so therefore, we'd say, well, actually, it's far better that we keep that individual's um, blood sugar stable and within the eighty to one hundred range rather than them eating the whole grains to get magnesium and therefore their like their range and their blood sugar increasing to 40 or 50 most of the day does that make sense that makes that makes a lot of sense and I, you, I remember you mentioned on the previous episode you spoke about porridge not great for someone with insulin resistance because i think we talk, we were talking about cravings as well that was going to be my next question regarding cravings it seems to be for a lot of 
uh, females with PCOS, their cravings goes a little bit crazier than someone that doesn't have PCOS. Um, have you got any tips on how to deal with those cravings um, yeah. and what foods they could implement into their diet and what foods they should potentially not have in their diet for that? Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. Have you had clients that have been complaining about this, that they're just like constantly craving sugar and I had, constantly hungry all the time? I literally onboarded a girl that cravings goes through the roof um, at a particular time of the day and they're, they, they literally just go absolutely haywire. And Let me guess, like mid-afternoon? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this is super common in... PCOS. Well, I would say not common in PCOS. It's super common in someone with PCOS and also likely um, insulin resistance and typically earlier stage insulin resistance. And this is because what happens, like as I just explained about insulin, is when your body is um, producing too much insulin, what will happen is that your blood sugar rises and your insulin rises and then it will kind of crash down. And you get on what I call the sugar coaster, where your blood sugar is just going up and down and up and down and up and down. And one of the things that when your blood sugar is down, going down, one of the things, one of the responses for your body is to say, uh, blood sugar is going down, this is not a good thing, we need to get this blood sugar back up into normal range, so... Um, we need the thing that's going to get blood sugar back up there as quickly as possible, which is sugar, because sugar is absorbed across our stomach wall into our blood very quickly, and and our body's not stupid. It knows this. It knows that that's going to be the thing that gets our blood sugar back up, so that's what it craves, and that's what it sends us towards. So instead of just saying to someone, well, actually, that's just perpetuating the problem of, you know, if you're, if you're eating sugar all the time, then yes, your blood sugar is going to go up, and then it's going to come down again, but... What So ideally we, we want to, if someone's got insulin resistance, we likely want to reduce that sugar intake down dramatically to help keep their blood sugar stable. But if you say that to someone who's got those sugar cravings, they're like, I have tried. I have tried so hard to not have sugar in the middle of the afternoon. Like I have done everything. I have re- rescheduled my day. And I'm talking from experience here. This is what I used to do. I would reschedule my day so I'd have all of my meetings in the afternoon to keep me distracted and I do any other like Excel spreadsheet work in the morning. Um, and basically that just meant that I was like not there at my desk just trying to fight the urge to go to that vending machine. And this is not about like willpower. It's not about like education. I was a registered nutritionist. I knew that having a Snickers bar every day was not the best thing for me, but the sugar cravings are so intense, again, because that is a physiological drive for your body to want to go and get that, to like avert this really low blood sugar crash. So what we do instead is we go, right, let's actually stop the sugar coaster from starting. So in the morning, let's actually get the blood sugar stable. So this is, goes back to your question about the porridge. And what we find is that women that have prediabetes or their insulin isn't functioning properly is that their body might produce too much insulin in relation to those carbohydrates as I said before so instead of staying within the 80 to 100 and those and these are not like actual ranges this is just me giving you and I like a, a number that you can visually see so you imagine there's a range between 80 and 100 and your blood sugar kind of should stay between those and someone with insulin their blood sugar might go up to 120 or 150 so for example, yesterday, I, and I measure my blood glucose all the time, so I know this, yesterday I had two handfuls of cherries and my blood sugar spiked up to say 120, right? And you'd think, cherries, that's fruit. How can fruit like, you know, be bad? But And they're not bad, but for me, that's not good because I want to keep my blood glucose stable. So same thing, like something that same thing might happen to someone with prediabetes who eats oatmeal or porridge. Same thing. And so you imagine if you have this massive spike, what goes up must come down. And so they'll likely find that by they have their breakfast at 8 o'clock, by 10 a.m., they're starting to get really hangry. So it's not the same hunger that normal people would get where they're just like, oh, yeah, I could eat soon. It's like, must eat now or I'm going to rip Shane's head off if we were in the same like office at the moment. Right? Like that is the like the kind of hangriness that you that often will happen. And that's called – it's called reactive hypoglycemia. So like imagine – like hypoglycemia, you're like as low, hypo is low. So it's a reaction from it going high and then coming down too low. 
and it's really really common thing that happens in, in PCOS and you might have listened Shane I had so many girls come on the podcast and talk about these things Stephanie was the latest one she was a few weeks ago and that was like her life and then you go and change their breakfast to try and stabilize their blood sugar through the whole day so they're not getting these rises and suddenly they are like oh my god I'm a different person I thought that I was just that sweet tooth that had to have sugar or I thought that I was the person that was just hangry and now I can go I can be that person that forgets to have lunch that's uh, that's that's awesome advice because I think a lot of from talking to a few of the girls that I have that I'm working with at the minute who have PCOS they feel that they potentially are can be a, may feel a little bit strange that their cravings are going completely bonkers and why isn't everyone else is going bonkers <laughs> so to hear that you are saying that there are other people out there including yourself who have had that I think that's can be reassuring to, to, to those to the girls as well which which is awesome so like I'm going to definitely I'm going to push this episode on them in particular and that's the main reason I recorded the episode bar getting yourself on because there's just so many females that suffer from PCOS it's uh it's, it's quite scary um we spoke about kind of nu- nutrition a little bit um regarding kind of is there any kind of particular interventions or that you would kind of recommend whether it be kind of low GI or high MUFA diets or is there anything like that that you kind of recommend for for people with PCOS yeah it's all about again going back to that root cause so the first thing that we would do so for anyone that I worked with individually or that came through a PCOS protocol what the first thing we do is just go right well what is actually going on in your body so what is that root cause or causes so do you have um, pre-diabetes or is your insulin functioning optimally or not um, and this is the thing that most women with PCOS won't know this, um, is my experience, because the you know our, our medical system aren't doing the right tests. I'll just, just digress a little bit there. I'll say that most women are getting their doctors will do what's called an HbA1c or a fasting blood glucose, and that will come back within the normal range, whether they've got insulin resistance or not. That will only really change if you're further towards type 2 diabetes. Um, and so most women that I work with will have no idea that their insulin is the issue. So that's kind of the first thing that we work out. The second thing is, is their stress hormones functioning properly? Is the third thing their thyroid's functioning properly or inflammation? Back to the dietary question, the diet part would mostly be if someone was insulin resistant. That's when we'd focus on diet first. If someone, their stress hormones were the thing that was the major issue, we wouldn't even really go there on diet first. We'd go and address that like the stress hormone stuff first but if someone was it was their insulin then yeah absolutely that would be the first thing that we do is change their breakfast right change their breakfast and get them to a breakfast that's far more um like that's going to keep their blood sugar in that range um and this can be there can be many like many different things that we would tweak there and also depending on their like dietary preferences and things like that so I'm not really like too prescriptive and say that um, everyone has to eat this meal plan it's just like actually what I want you to do is eat here's some guidelines follow these if you've got insulin resistance which we find out first Um, but the like low GI yeah it can um, certainly would want to be eating low GI but GIs um, so it's that's glycemic index and glycemic index measures how much your blood sugar rises after eating a um, a certain food. There's been some newer research coming out so that the University of Sydney was the people that discovered the glycemic index. They've since discovered something called the insulin index, which is how much your insulin rises in response to that food. And that's what I'm more interested in is what's your insulin, how much is that rising like in relation to um, what you're eating? Because we're trying to keep, remember, we're trying to keep the insulin down because insulin high insulin leads to high testosterone which then leads to like acne and hair growth and fertility challenges and hair loss and other symptoms like that and weight gain so what i would do is i'd get getting them to eat on the for the insulin index um, more than the glycemic index well okay um and in relation to the the training and exercising when you have pcos like exercise is is kind of one of those things that most of us would recommend to anyone, whether they have PCOS or not. But is there any form of exercise that has been shown to kind of 
help those with PCOS a little bit more than potentially other forms of exercise? Yeah, this was, remember we had this good conversation last time, Shane, about like, I think that because many women with PCOS struggle with weight and like struggling to lose weight, there are, what frightens me is that there has been this change over the last probably 10 years of um, like, especially in the media and things like that, people are thinking that you have to have these really, really high intense, hard workouts um, to, for them to be effective. Like you have to absolutely slaughter yourself with a hour long, like Tabata or hit session, like, you know, your Barry's boot camp. And, and actually the marker of a good workout is whether you're like sweating and spewing afterwards because you've literally like completely shattered yourself. And that really concerns me that this is kind of the, the marker of a good workout. Um, and I, because I've been there, because when I was really struggling with my weight, I was like, well, if, um, you know, all I've learned over these years of studying nutrition and exercise science is that weight is just about calories in, calories out. So if I'm not losing weight training 20 hours a week or doing a training for a 10K race, then I'm going to go and do a marathon. And if a marathon doesn't make me lose weight, I'm going to do an ultra marathon. And then, like, it's this perpetuation, or if one hit class doesn't help them, I'm going to do three hit classes back to back. And the trouble with that is that we're just really absolutely screwing our stress hormones as well. And we know that women with, you know, like all women, not just women with PCOS, but that is a, you know, a real challenge, especially in the kind of fast paced lifestyle we already live in, is that you imagine you have a bucket that is your capability of handling stress, like, and you have to add in there all of the things. You add in there, like, working in a um, working in a corporate job or living in a city like um, like London or Dublin or any kind of big city. Those your bucket's already pretty much three quarters full. You then go and add in like having you know any other kind of stress, like maybe your boss is a dick, or maybe you're like. You haven't got good social support around you. Maybe you're living far away from home and your bucket's already like pretty much full. You then go and add in there your three hit classes and you're overflowing. And we can deal with that for a certain amount of time. Our our stress hormones are really resilient and they're capable. But, you know, you do that over the course of two or three years and suddenly you're going into this. It's called HPA access dysfunction. The old name for it is adrenal fatigue. And suddenly your stress hormones aren't producing the way that it should. And you feel like crap. You're tired all the time. You wake up, your brain foggy. And, you know, and then in PCOS, your adrenal glands are producing that brother from another mother testosterone. So you're just adding to this whole picture instead of making it better. So, like, my... Um, my method is, is very similar to yours, Shane, like what we talked about last time is really focusing on, again, going back to that root cause. And instead of focusing on the calories is going, actually, let's actually fix that root cause. And if it is insulin resistance, if they do have prediabetes or some insulin issues, um, then let's actually focus on making their body more sensitive to insulin. And the way we do that is through strength training um, and maybe also a little bit of high intensity. But when we talk about HIIT training, and I'm sure you're the same with this, we're not talking about an hour-long HIIT class, right? That's not HIIT training. Would you agree? I would 100% agree. Like, there's like Joe Wicks is huge over in the UK and Ireland, and he's the king of kind of bringing HIIT sessions or high-intensity interval training is what HIIT means. And they should really only be 10, 15, 20 minutes maximum. If they are going on for any longer, you're really not pushing yourself enough. That You should be properly sweating after 10, 15, 20 minutes. You should be pumping sweat after those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now you, can, you can even do a hit session that's four minutes long, right? Like a Tabata. Yeah. Like, I don't know about you, but I can be, like, on the ground. Like, I can't have to, like, peel myself off after I've done, a like, a four-minute Tabata if I've been going hard. So it doesn't – and – more is not better when it comes to exercise and actually, you know, doing what we're supposed to do. I think the other thing too is that I really encourage my woman to just get a lot of like activity in. So whether that's just walking like part of the way to work or um, just like uh, just doing their own cleaning or walking around home, but just trying to be as active as possible to get in about that eight to 10,000 steps. Um, that's, that's what I really encourage and then pair that with some strength training sessions and maybe a little bit of high intensity depending on what their stress hormones are doing if they're like if their stress hormones and again we might go and do like a Dutch test for this which is a really um, sensitive for picking up urine and salivary cortisol which 
and then we can like map how their body is producing cortisol throughout the day. Um, if their like if their adrenal glands are really struggling to respond and actually produce any cortisol, then we wouldn't do any high intensity for them for quite some time until that's improved. We just focus on, and I just say them to them. I'm like, channel a lazy boy in the gym. Just channel that like. Put your hoodie up, just not even trying to get a sweat on, but just moving some heavy weight and then get, to lo- get lots of walking in and try and just repair for the next few months. And then we might go back and be able to do some high intensity. But if you're like, if you're struggling to, if you're like struggling to get to sleep at night, like you're lying in bed and you're tired and wired, or you wake up in the morning and you feel like you've been hit by a bus, or you just are so fatigued and you know that's not normal, then it isn't normal. And maybe that is time that you need to actually just back off some stuff and focus on repairing those adrenal glands rather than absolutely smashing them. And that goes for anyone that may not have PCOS. You have to listen ah, to your 100%. body. And even girls in particular, you you have to realize that at certain times of the month, you'll have a little bit more energy. At certain times of the month, you'll have a little bit less energy. And you need to listen to your body and do a little bit of research on it, track your, track your period to see when you'll have that little bit more energy, which... For, for some girls is generally the week before and then the week of is one of those weeks that you kind of just reduce your intensity of the gym try to stay away from the high intensity workouts get a little bit of steps up if you have a little bit bit of bloating drink a little bit more water and try to get your steps up and kind of listen to your body a little bit more and then once you've kind of had that week of having to reduce it as some could call it a deload week that's what i would use it as then kind of pick it up again and then you'll be able to kind of enjoy it again in kind of the week before you'll be able to push yourself when there'll be a little bit be a little bit more estrogen and testosterone in your body and even for for males that are potentially listening to this as well deloads are important for you guys as well like it's all great and dandy kind of smashing weights for the for the sake of it men don't really listen to other people we're not great at that um so it's important to listen to your body as well if you are if you are really really tired and have a really really stressful job and you've got kids at home and are just like and you're not sleeping properly it's important for you to potentially alter your the the session that you're doing in the gym and not going out and just smashing yourself in the gym and not letting your body recover and not fueling it correctly yeah absolutely and do you find that many of your woman clients are tracking their cycles I get them all to track their cycles. So on the nice. the sheet that the girls have to fill in weekly, it on one of the the tabs they have to say at what stage they are at and what symptoms they are having or any discomfort that they are having. So it allows me to be able to kind of say, look, we need to do X, Y, and Z because every single female is different. I have girls that are unable to train when they're on their cycles. I have girls that can. Can, will lose weight on the week of I've girls that blow completely and can put on about four or five kilos on the week of everyone's so different um so it's I never thought when I started doing the PT and the nutrition stuff would I be listening to three hour lectures on menstrual cycles and PCOS but it's one of those things that is it's kind of I'm down a rabbit hole now and I think I'm a little bit too deep into the rabbit hole not to get out so um but I think it's amazing because so many like even in the research, there's so much that is male focused, or you don't know, but it's just basically they'll say, "Oh, this we've done this cycle, we've done this research," and you, you don't know it's on like you know 18 to 21 year old males because that's who's at university at the time and who's willing to do a study because they need some money, and but then they just like attribute that to well, this is all people, and it's like hold on, females are very different physiologically from males, like what that works for them there does not mean that that works for a female and a female at you know if they do try and do a female cycle that well sorry a female study that they'll do it in their follicular phase the first half of their cycle which is as most like a male as you you can be as a female so you know i think that's really important to what you're doing is actually realizing that females are not small males we're very different we actually have a lot of different requirements and we can actually harness that for extra performance, right? We can actually train and, and go hard in part of your cycle to get the best adaptations we can and then go easy and use that as our deload week, um, which is very, very smart. Like you've you, you've literally just hit the nail on the head there with kind of females are not small males. And I think from being on a gym floor, from, from kind of looking at PTs and stuff like that, too many people, 
PTs or people in the industry. This isn't to have a this isn't a pop at anyone in particular. This is that a lot of PTs don't necessarily understand female physiology and they male PTs, female PTs are training females as if they can hammer it every single session. We yeah. there, there needs to be a little bit more content there needs to be a little bit more voice out there and it's amazing like yourself over all all the way over in New Zealand there's people over here and you mentioned uh Gyno Geek um as well and there's and there's other few others as well and there's Martin McDonald from M and U uh because I know my one of my exam questions was a case study on PCOS so that's why it's so fresh in my head. Um, amazing. So and I, the the woman are not small mean is not my quote I know. Stacey Sims. Um, <laughs> oh no, just just to be clear, I just want to don't want to like take anyone's thunder. But Dr. Stacey Sims, so she's a phenomenal um, like researcher in female physiology and, and female performance. Um, so she works with a lot of like high athletes and stuff like that. But she's on Instagram as well. She's fantastic, um, and she yeah, just really good at understanding and the differences and and the just the nuances of female physiology. Uh, the last point I think I'm going to make is that I think. Females with PCOS may feel that they are unable to lose weight. It the truth is that you guys, after kind of understanding what your symptoms are and understanding how to deal with your symptoms, it's important for you to potentially lower your calories a little bit less than a person at the same weight or say same build or whatever it may be, and you will be able to adjust. May be a little bit slower for you but the most important thing is you have to enjoy the journey you have to enjoy the one positive out of it is from the extra testosterone you'll be able to lift a little bit heavier than someone that may not have it so try to embrace that extra little bit of testosterone to try and go for those pbs get strong as fuck and kind of and and embrace that side of things because some some girls and some lads are kind of scared to kind of push themselves a little bit harder in the gym but use that extra, extra testosterone to, to put that to good, to good use. But be, like it will take you a little bit longer, but it's not impossible. It's definitely not impossible. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so, super important. And also just to think the real crux there is not compare yourself to anybody or have any expectations that you're comparing yourself to. So it's like actually just focus on the things that you can control, which is what am, what are those what are the what are the behaviors that I know are going to make the biggest impact for me so if it is insulin resistance am I eating foods that's going to keep my like insulin and blood sugar stable am I um, you know doing the exercise that I know that's going to improve my insulin sensitivity and just focus on at the end of the day it's like okay have I achieved those things that I know that are super important same thing like am I getting good sleep so knowing those really important factors and then not worrying too much about the outcome because you don't necessarily have control over that but it's what you do have total control over is the actions that you're taking every day 100 percent. and then i think the the last point that i was going to make is regarding kind of the nutrition side of things is to for people for girls with pcos is to make sure that they're kind of eating plenty of protein um i know this is a big buzzword at the minute would be in calorie deficit and protein but there has been research stating that in order to kind of help with kind of the muscle repair and to help with their hunger and all that kind of stuff is that keeping the protein quite high in your diet potentially a little bit more than a female who doesn't have it would be would be very beneficial for 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 you uh, in the long run as well mm, yeah yeah absolutely so Claire what is coming up next for you you've got the podcast which is amazing I've listened to a lot of the episodes and fair play for the girls that have gone on that that cannot be easy to go on to a podcast that is listened to as much as as yours um, and so fair play to those to the girls you have a book coming out I think in March is what you've mentioned yeah so later this year like well sorry later this first first quarter um, and that's all about getting pregnant with PCOS. So that's the first book that I've written. Um, and I decided to focus on just the fertility aspect um, because so many times when we like want information, we want it based on our very particular symptoms. So maybe that's weight loss for you or maybe that's hair growth or hair loss. But for many women, it's also fertility. So there's just so much to put in. Like if you 
looked at every symptom, you it would just be overwhelming the amount that you'd have to write. So that's why I focus this one on fertility, which is very exciting. So for anyone that wants to follow Claire, I would head over to Instagram uh, at the PCOS nutritionist. Her listen to her podcast, listen to the girls she has, see if any of the stories resonate with you. I have no doubt that one of the girls' stories will definitely definitely resonate with you, even if it's and even Claire's story will may resonate with you as well. So Claire, thank you so much for coming on for the second time in like three weeks. Uh, and re-recording after the the sound quality uh, after the the first episode. So thank you so much for giving up. You I don't even know what time it is over there uh, for coming on. Um, and guys, if you enjoyed it all, please do tag Claire the PCOS nutritionist um, on Instagram and tag myself in it as well. And leave reviews up on iTunes and please enjoy it, guys. It's it's an incredible episode. I'm going to definitely listen back to it uh, to take those notes so I can help the girls that I'm working with. So thank you so much for coming on, Claire. My pleasure. Great to talk to you again.